1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We've got a lot of ground I hope we'll get to cover today on the show. So I want to get right to introducing our panel. It's Thursdays, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is Kevin Riley, the editor-in-chief himself, the boss. Kevin, you know I'm always glad when you can be with us for the show.
2: You know, it's just not Thursday if we're not together, Bill. That's how I feel about it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for being here. State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver is back with us as well. Um, Her district, she's based in Decatur, but it covers much broader territory than just Decatur. Um, Mary Margaret, we always love having you with us, too, so thank you for being here. I know you're in session uh, today, so I'm really glad you could be here uh, for at least most of the show.
0: Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I'm in the Capitol, kind of hiding away in a quiet office, and we'll leave a few minutes early to do my roll call vote. Thank you for the invitation. Got,
1: gotta be there. Hey, Mary Margaret, does does do they still lock the chamber for the uh uh for the prayer, the uh, uh preacher of the day?
0: There is definitely lock the doors and who scoots in <laughs> and who scoots is always, I kind of sit close to the door, so I'm always following that. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Leo Smith is back with us. He's been a Republican strategist for a good part of his career. He's now the CEO of Engaged Futures, an organization he founded um, to, among other things, try to work on ways to get people of diverse backgrounds and interests to work more collaboratively. How are you, Leo?
3: I'm doing very well, thank you. And I've never, uh, I'll never—I'll be remiss to miss a moment to thank Mary Margaret or any legislator for not being like Congress and uh, actually getting our speaker in place and uh, moving on with the business of Georgia. Thank you, Mary Margaret. Boy,
1: that's thank you. That's for sure. And Amy Staggerwald, professor of political science at Georgia State University, right now is still the co-chair of the political science department, but soon to add to her already full uh, resume. Uh, the fact that she will be the chair of the political science department. How are you doing, Amy?
4: I'm I'm doing well. We're we're into classes, and you know, smooth, relatively smooth sailing so far, which is good.
1: Good. I'm glad to hear that. All right, let's get right to it. Um, we'll spend just a little time at the top of the show today talking about Governor Kemp's State of the State speech yesterday. Um, he Talked a lot about a lot of different issues, as most governors do in their speeches, Kevin. But I think one of the things that emerged uh, is a the theme that he has already been talking about through his campaign. Uh, he's talked about before uh, this speech. And, and that is, uh, he, as, as he called it, it's time for uh, a new phase of law and order measures in uh, the state's approach to criminal justice policy. And, Kevin, he referred to what he called the riot, which is not an inappropriate term probably, over the weekend uh, in downtown by the people who opposed the Atlanta Police Training Center. And before we start talking about it, let's just listen to a little of how Kemp framed his new Get Tough on Crime initiative in terms of that riot.
5: Just this past weekend when out-of-state rioters tried to bring violence to the streets of our capital city. State patrol, sheriff's deputies, and Atlanta police quickly brought peace and order. That's just the latest example why here in Georgia, we will always back the blue.
1: Kevin, um, this get tough on crime approach is something that really was one of the centerpieces of the speech. That's for sure, Uh, and of course, um it's
2: it's a winning issue to be tough on crime we know that in you know you mentioned the recent ajc poll it ranks second among people's concerns and uh, crime and personal safety that always ranks high um so i I think the governor is going to keep hammering away at it and again i i just think uh, this speech sounded more like a campaign speech than an inauguration speech i mean when you get right down to it so you just have to keep wondering where he's going next
1: Mary Margaret, um, let me bring you in on this. Um, One of the things he did in the speech when he talked about the um, riot over the weekend in downtown Atlanta was that he praised the Fulton County judge who denied bond for uh, four of the activists who were uh, charged with, uh, I think in this case, domestic terrorism over the weekend. But then he went on after praising them and said, and I'm going to quote him, Unfortunately, this approach is not universal across the judicial system. While some may not take this issue seriously, I can assure you I do. We can and we must do something about the revolving door of criminal justice. And that's a theme he has struck before as well. Permissive district attorneys.
0: You know, I used to set bonds myself. I used to be a magistrate court judge that served on the weekend shifts at the jail in DeKalb County and set bonds. So I have followed the discussion about the quote revolving door closely. And in the past years, we have eliminated cashless bond for practical purposes. We've eliminated some of the uh, pre-filed diversion programs based on bonds. So the, the real issue of Not setting a bond or setting a bond is still a judicial discretion, but the General Assembly has acted dramatically in the last year on this political message about too many people are let out of jail too quickly. Uh, The reality of who gets to set bonds and what the discretion is has been already narrowed by the General Assembly, but it is a judicial function. So it's something that is hard to make more narrow. Uh, with any new policies, and uh, we don't have any specifics yet from the governor on how he wants to, quote, in the revolving door, close quote.
1: Yeah, that's right. We, we heard a little bit, only a little bit, uh, Amy. Uh, um, he, he said that they're going to uh, uh, set higher penalties for uh, uh, gang members who go out to recruit children, but there, there's got to be a lot more coming, I would expect, from him.
4: Possibly, and so one of the things that I'm sort of most struck by is that it's really in stark contrast to uh, one of the defining characteristics, uh, policy characteristics of our previous governor, Nathan Deal, right, who moved to try and ensure that there that we sort of separated how we dealt with violent criminals as opposed to those who might have be getting caught up in the system and are being sort of penalized in different ways. So a lot of times, and I think this is important, that when we talk about, uh, for example, the removal of cash bail, it's not for violent crimes. It's never been for violent crimes or crimes against people or even property crimes, usually. It's things like misdemeanors and all of that because it, frankly, is incredibly expensive to keep people in jail who can't pay their bail, right? So there actually is a cost savings to the state Especially if there is no history of violence, you're not being charged for a violent crime. But to uh, Kevin's point, it has always been a winning issue to argue to be tough on crime and to crack down. I mean, I think there it does make sense. This sort of focus again on the gangs and things like that. And I think what's partly getting cut up in here is sort of. Um, a conflation of these discussions about, for example, prosecutors who are saying that they're not going to uh, perhaps charge people under HB 481. Uh, So women who secure abortions or things like that in certain jurisdictions, which is a very different discussion than whether or not anyone is uh, suggesting that they're not going to prosecute someone for gang violence, for murder, for uh, you know, violent destruction or something like that, but it's hard to separate it out because again, and, and let me, the last thing I'll just say really quickly is that we, we continue to confront the reality, uh, and of course, as social scientists I really like data. The perception of people is that crime is at an all time high. The reality is that crime is actually at a 30 year low. We have had little bits of upticks, but that's because it's fallen so much. So, if you look back to, for example, the crime rates in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we are dramatically lower than that. But the perception is that it is much higher. And a lot of that is then being fed into it as we're having these debates over what to do.
1: Leo, jump in. No, and the confluence of that
3: perception, as Professor Steigerwatt brings up, um, is that the hard reality is people are thinking through the fact that news is more easily transmissible. And we know about things happening much faster now. We hear the stories of people impacted by violence much easier now. And so now we start to ask ourselves questions. What about the human development This, of the all of society approach to actually getting back into rehabbing people, finding out why they turned to violence? All those questions are now being posed to sociologists, to psychologists, and you're seeing leaders from governor deal and now governor kemp starting to talk about okay what what is it to be tough on crime but smart on human behavior and accountability and how do we shape that from school to courtroom
1: um you know mary margaret i want to bring you back on on this for just a moment because you w- will remember well how the pendulum has swung back and forth over the decades uh zell miller in his first term as governor back in 1991 Uh, He struck a very tough-on-crime note, two strikes and you're out, build new prisons to accommodate more uh, uh, violent offenders. Um, Then, as as Amy points out, years later, Nathan Deal comes along and wins national praise for his criminal justice reforms, which, among other things, reduced the population of black prisoners to historic lows during his tenure— and now we're heading back with uh, Governor Kemp in the other direction, and by the way, so is the Republican-controlled House heading in that direction? Mary Margaret, you know, talk a little bit about this pendulum.
0: The pendulum definitely swings, and the specifics of what makes it swing is a real is, is a smart policy discussion to have. However, we don't have enough smart policy discussions. We are responding to the emotional uh, response that people have to a police officer being shot. Last week in the budget uh, hearings, the state patrol uh, new director uh, was presenting his budget within hours of the policeman sustaining a life-threatening gunshot from the very volatile and very emotional uh, dynamic going on in relation to the property in DeKalb County, unincorporated DeKalb County, where the Atlanta Police Foundation wants to build its training center. it's a very emotional issue that people respond to. On my street and three streets near me in my district, there's been a rash of breaking windows to get into cars. Uh, Those are, quote unquote, property crimes. I'm guessing that people are breaking windows to get into cars, 10, 5, 10 cars in a row on my street for the purpose of looking for guns, 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 violence, and the shooting of people on a daily basis creates an emotional response from my constituents and my voters. Getting to a smart policy discussion about what we do about that seems to be very elusive. The governor yesterday says he wants to increase penalties for certain crimes. There is no science that the increasing of penalties stops crimes. And in relation to the rhetoric and the reality of gangs, He wants to create a new crime to criminalize the recruitment of someone into a crime, into a gang. I'm very interested to see what the specifics of that proposal might be. What are the elements of a crime that could be defined to recruit someone into a gang? The discussion is just not as focused as I would like it to be on prevention of violence. What is it we need to do to prevent violent crimes as opposed to allegedly penalizing violent crimes in a way that doesn't make us safer? It's pretty discouraging to feel the genuine emotion of my constituents, the genuine fears people have, but be at a loss as to any kind of productive, good, smart discussion.
1: Kevin, do you want to weigh in on that? And don't,
2: and don't forget, I mean, uh, you know, Leo and uh, Representative Oliver have pointed out this sort of idea of the holistic approach. Not any one thing is going to work. Uh, can we have a more thoughtful discussion? That's a tough discussion to have. Um, I would also point out that don't forget that late last year. The head of we're talking about putting more people in prison ultimately with some of these ideas. The head of Georgia's prison system left, and it was after a lot of reporting, you know, by by the AJC that the, the corrections department had been overwhelmed by homicides, extortion, suicides, and other problems. So uh, we can we can if we put more people in prison. We we really have to figure out how do we manage that part of this
1: idea. Um, I want to I want to move on to a couple other things in the governor's speech. But while we're talking about violent crime, Mary Margaret, uh, you said just before the show and on the air that um, you're terribly concerned about uh, uh, where we stand on legislation on uh, permissive gun laws and whether we you think there's any chance either we here in this state or. At uh, Congress will do anything in the in the wake of of this extraordinary uh, number of mass shootings in the month of January.
0: In my long political career, the one issue that has gotten worse and more partisan, and absolutely seems to be locked down on partisan discussion, is gun violence and gun safety. There is a, a, a many new bills that have been introduced in the first uh, nine days of the session. I am sponsoring some myself in relation to liability for misuse of your personal gun and gun safety protections to require you to do something to do something to secure your gun. I think that the fact that the vote is a hundred percent partisan and that the public safety committees on neither the House nor the Senate have real debates is in contrast to where the the tone was when I first came into politics. And I find it close to hopeless right now. And I hate to say that because that's not a, certainly not a positive message, but we have a a good new group of freshman legislators and we have a good set of proposals that have been introduced about personal responsibility for your gun ownership. And perhaps I'm wrong, perhaps we will have a real debate on what is the responsibility of you, as a gun owner, when your gun is used in a crime by taken by your child, or taken out of an unlocked car, or in some way left, loaded, even cocked, and acquired by a child or a criminal in a way that causes a crime. I want to have that public policy discussion and not feel so hopeless.
1: I, I, we will follow up on that subject very specifically in a much more in-depth way in the weeks ahead, uh, Mary Margaret. So thank you for re- raising it now. I know this panel, I hope you'll indulge me, because I want to get a couple of other matters about the governor's speech And I know you all would love to keep talking about the first issue here. But let's talk, uh, Amy, about the fact that the governor, a- as we knew he would, because he's talked about it before, has a lot of money uh, to give out because of the uh, massive state surplus. And, I mean, some of it's really going to be welcomed out there, full funding of uh, schools, uh, an effort to uh, uh, give teachers and state employees a raise. We assume that the legislature will go along with that. There are all, there's all sorts of goodies there. But um, let's also talk about the fact that he praised his uh, program, his waiver program. He's going to put money in this plan, uh, uh, which um, is the Georgia Pathways program, which will expand Medicaid in a limited way, the governor's office now says, to about 90,000 Georgians in exchange for them having to work or perform some sort of public uh, service in the community. It's very controversial. The governor took advantage of that in his speech yesterday to take a shot at Democrats and President Biden. Let's just listen and then talk about it for a couple minutes.
5: The Georgia Pathways to Coverage program was negotiated in good faith with the federal government so that we could expand access to health insurance for those who need it the most, while also sustaining the quality of coverage. But it was the Biden administration that delayed its launch for over a year until thankfully a judge threw out their biased objections to this innovative approach. Those are the facts. When it comes to health care for hard work in Jordan's, the Biden administration would rather play partisan politics than get people insured and lowered cost. Folks, we don't have time to wait on Washington and I don't have much patience for DC posturing.
1: So, Amy, he went on to say that it was as a result of the Pathways program that more than some 800,000 or more Georgians had signed up for health care on the uh, exchange. But in fact, it's a little disingenuous because that's the federal uh, Obamacare exchange.
4: Yes. So the Biden administration has taken a lot of effort uh, and expanded grants to states to be able to aid people in signing up for the exchanges. Um The state of georgia was actually blocked from the fact that they did not want to allow people to be able to uh find that information and that was one of the things that the state was blocked on and that judges have upheld uh that decision that allows uh people otherwise you would not be able in fact to have that expansion and i think partly what we're seeing is um it's getting at the core of kind of a difference in philosophy about what is the role of government how do we help people? What does it mean to help people? And how should money be spent? So on the one hand is right the, the Kemp plan. One of the things that's important about it is that it for the first time puts a uh, work requirement on the ability to access Medicaid. Previously, it has been similar, uh, simply about uh, income in trying to expand coverage. And so the idea here is that there is a type of sort of buy-in or that one has to take steps. Um, On the other side, the sort of criticism that he's still facing is that it would, for the exact same amount of money, if he would fully uh, expand it, because you have the increased payment that comes from the federal government with that full expansion, it would actually be... Uh, the same amount of money spent by the state, if not a little bit less, and more people covered. But it would lose, right, that sort of side that is very important to uh, the conservative arguments about how, I, what I, this should look like and what it means to be able to get access.
1: Leo, I want to make it clear the Pathways Program, the governor will, it says he's going to ramp up in July. It, it isn't in place uh, and active yet. And there's money uh, going into doing that. But, Leo, uh, uh, yesterday in the Democratic Response uh, to the governor's speech, Senator Elena Parrott, uh, of course, as Democrats do, called for full expansion of Medicaid, which would cover more than probably 400,000 people who need insurance in Georgia. Leo?
3: Yeah, the governor Kemp's messaging about this as his approach for this should be a part progressive implementation. Of these changes. And I think that eventually we will get to a full implementation. But what he's saying is we want focus on coverage and the quality of coverage. We want it to be sustainable. And I can see in the future, as he throws this $52 million in investment to implement his idea of part progressive, um, that we're going to see some local municipalities and some local areas where this is concentrated and, and, and delivering it to uh, segments of people so we can test how much weight does it put on the system? Can we rely on it. Does it end up taking people who can afford regular independent market-based coverage and putting them on a system that's not as, uh, uh, that's going to overtax and overburden society. Um, I think that's how he's looking at this from a holistic perspective.
1: Mary Margaret.
0: We are 10 years about into a, uh, Medicaid expansion that was created by the Affordable Act, Obamacare, used to be called Obamacare, where 20 to 30, 25 million people have increased, uh, have obtained uh, services, and Georgia's one of 10 states that won't do it. And we are forfeiting billions of dollars and a comprehensive, uh, popular, obviously popular health care plan that 25 million people have signed up for and benefiting from. It is irrational to me that we are taking a different more narrowly focused approach. The campaign speech that the governor made yesterday on his Pathways program, and it was a campaign speech when you talk about the bias of the federal government and we don't want to be like them, um, is just, again, it's a little bit discouraging. What the positive is, is that there are a lot of real conversations going on around the fringes um, about the use of the word waiver instead of the word uh, Medicaid expansion that could uh, result in some expanded coverage. And I am in some discussions about these waiver expansions with uh, to the federal government. Those are cumbersome and they uh, are time consuming, whereas, quote, Medicaid expansion, traditional Medicaid expansion would be easier procedurally uh, and ex- cost less and cover more people but there are discussions going on about how we get more people covered the biggest issue uh stopping us other than the politics of this which are not positive is workforce and i will tell you that workforce issues are at the center of our medical debate as well as these political jargon words of medicaid expansion
1: Kevin, before we get to a break, I want to give you the last word on this uh, sec- segment. Well, I know we
2: just listened to a sound to a uh, sound bite there, but um you know, again, we hear that phrase, hardworking Georgians, and we know we're talking about, uh, I think the governor said 90,000, but we know there are, could be as many as 400,000 covered under this, you know, if the proposal were a true Medicaid expansion. So, I mean, does that mean that the other 300,000 people are not hardworking Georgians? And, you know, he devoted so much time to, I don't, you know, he says, I don't have patience for D.C. posturing, uh, the Biden administration, partisan politics. So, again, I mean, I think the focus is, much less on uh, how do we as a state conquer this challenge and it's it's much more uh, political statements um the governor, governor
1: margaret real quick
0: he used hard-working georgian seven times in his speech that's obviously well, it's, it's... A word that's been polled and he used yeah, I mean, several times as well
3: yeah <laughs> all
1: right all right Thank you all for a really uh, good uh, first segment conversation. Let's get to a break. We'll be back with more in just a moment.
3: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News's extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday
0: afternoon.
1: Amy Staggerwalt, Leo Smith, Mary Margaret, Oliver, and Kevin Riley join us. <clears throat> excuse me for today's political rewind, uh, Kevin. Uh, we talked uh, uh, in great detail when you were on the show last week about the uh, Atlanta Police Training Center uh, controversies, and you gave us a great breakdown of the history of that whole uh, 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 plan to put that in place. Now, of course, since since then, over the weekend, what was without question a riot in downtown Atlanta uh, uh, adds to the tension around this site. And yesterday, DeKalb County District Attorney Sherry Boston said that she wanted to recuse herself and her office from prosecuting the people charged with domestic terrorism. And we should very quickly point out the reason this would normally go to, um, I, I'm sorry, she is not going to recuse from prosecuting the people for domestic terrorism. She is going to recuse her office from the any charges that could come out of the officer-involved shooting that led to the death of somebody who was occupying the site and the reason she wants to do that is because she is in fact prosecuting uh the domestic terrorism uh cases. I apologize for the confusion there but m- more important Kevin is uh this situation sin- continues to spiral out of control.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's true and and there's it's uh it- it's a not a simple situation to describe. Um, and, and you know some of the protesters are about the uh, green space that they feel is going to be destroyed in this. Um, others are anti-police clearly. Um, you know, people object to even the term protesters in some cases and want to refer to them as terrorists uh, and rioters. Um, so it, it, for our community, it is a very tough moment um and i also think that at some point our community is going to need a, a leader to emerge because right now the protesters the terrorists the group against this wh- however you feel about them and of course how you feel about them colors what you call them but that group is controlling the narrative they do something there's a reaction and and i think that puts us in a tough spot in terms of mm-hmm. all right Let's really, you know, either solve this problem, make the decision, um, make sure there's clarity around what's going to happen, because uh, they there's a lot of confusion about there, out there about exactly what the center is, what's going to happen, when it's going to happen.
1: Mary Margaret, so I just really botched my explanation of what Sherry Boston did yesterday. She is going to be in charge of prosecuting many of those charged with domestic terrorism. And the reason she does it in DeKalb County is because that's where the property that the city of Atlanta owns rests, in DeKalb County. GBI is right now investigating, as they do every officer involved shooting, to see if there was any wrongdoing there. That, if there was, that would normally go to Sherry Boston in DeKalb. That's what she doesn't want to take up because she feels it's a conflict of interest with her prosecution of the domestic, so-called domestic terrorists. Now, DeKalb County is your territory. Talk about this case.
0: <clears throat> my, uh tip my hat again to Mike Thurman, who did such a wonderful job Monday morning on your program to describe the complexity of the interjurisdictional issues that this Uh, issue arises, 246 acres of property is an unincorporated DeKalb, and the permitting process that is initiated by the Atlanta Police Foundation, who never discussed any of this with DeKalb County when they announced that's where they were putting their training system, is within the office and the jurisdiction of unincorporated DeKalb, i.e. Mike Thurman the property's owned however by the city of Atlanta and it is this 246 acres is an enormously is a large uh, property for a potential park and preserve that was in a a very long standing planning process how do we take this property that's been misused as a dump or misused as historically as a prison farm and make it an urban uh, park that's available to the Uh, expanding uh, group of young families and diverse population inside the perimeter. The Atlanta Police Foundation came in and made a proposal to take 80 acres for a new training system for police and fire, and CEO Thurman has been negotiating directly with them to reduce the 80 acres down to about 45 acres and make other uh, decisions in relation to the fact that this Uh, property is within the South River Alliance jurisdiction, which is uh, a a river in in South River goes across DeKalb and Fulton County has a lot of industrial environmental issues that require cleanup. South River is a contributory to the Altamaha River, our biggest water river shed. So the issues are very much tied to DeKalb's planning process. It's been Uh, diverted based on this proposal and to the need, legitimate need, of the city of Atlanta for an adequate training center. They don't want, DeKalb County didn't want either, to go to the training center down in Forsyth, Georgia. So you have multiple jurisdictions. You have the city of Atlanta. You have multiple police entities, uh, GBI, public safety, DeKalb County Sheriff's Office, DeKalb County Police. And Sherry Boston is recusing herself uh, appropriately based on her service of an interagency prosecutorial team in relation to some of these issues. And if, you, if she maintained her posture for all of her prosecutorial opportunities and duties, you'd be giving an issue to the defendant group of diverse group of defendants who are charged in multiple ways. Very complicated politics, very complicated legal jurisdictions, and a lot of emotion on all kinds of a very difficult issue.
1: So, so it is complicated. And Leo, and then Amy, I'd love to get your take on something that Kevin started with, which is what in the world is going to de-escalate uh, this increasingly violent uh, tension between among the many sides involved in that training center?
3: It's clear that we've got a grievance culture from Donald Trump to a visiting activist, uh, rebel rouser from Maine. Um, We have people who will not accept democracy's processes. And when local authorities working with community agencies uh, have meetings to determine the future of environmental impact, the future of police training curriculum and the need for facilities for such, um, and then they come to decision by council, elected officials, and there are people who still want to accept the results. Sound familiar? Yes, this problem is not going away. So this is a bigger problem than just the procedural aspects of governance. This problem gets to the matter of mm-hmm. how people are feeling marginalized and isolated on the streams of voice. So what we must do is increase voice. We must increase people's ability to find a pipeline for their their words to be heard, for their concerns to be heard, and then we must increase our communicative voice as city council people on what happened, what was done. It is a failure of the elected leadership that they could not talk to each other. But then, if we want smaller government, then we've Mm got to be bigger people. That's one of the models of engaged futures. And so I work with the Carter Center to say, where are these gaps where Political officials, civic leaders are falling astray and not able to bring people together across consensus. And even if not meeting consensus, say rule of law, peaceful civic engagement should be the the order. So that's what we do with Democracy Resilience Network, and and we really need a young uh, President Carter kind of voice, independent, saying, "Hey, folks, do better at all levels."
1: Amy.
4: Um. I- Leo really sort of hit the nail on the head with one of the comments that part of the issue that we have is this sort of feeling from a lot of people on the left and the right that they are not being heard, but also that the sort of only proper response Mm. is uh, violence and almost a form of anarchy, right? And a rejection in many ways of sometimes reality of what exactly is going on, right? What What are the nuances? What are the discussions going on? whether it's a rejection of election results or a rejection of uh, the, for example, environmental impact analyses that come out or the actual discussions that are going on on the ground of what it might look like. Sure, there's a proposal, but as we all know, right, the reality is you propose something, but then you negotiate, right? That's the starting place. And that's not where it's necessarily going to end up. And what then makes this even more difficult is that, we do have the reality, unfortunately, right, that there are some people who I don't know quite how you explain it, and, and I think criminologists have better names for it, of those who are coming in and they see this as a, they they want to engage in violence and they sort of take advantage, right? So you also have the problem that, right, legitimate peaceful protests get hijacked by those who want to do this. And so then that conflates it, right, that it and it, it serves honestly to undermine right, the legitimate arguments that protesters might be making and to make it be that there's violence. And it builds into this other stuff, which really complicates all of this as we try to get to uh, kind of a democratic discussion about what should be done. So,
1: so Kevin, before we have to uh, uh, give up on this subject today, I I do want to go back to Sherry Boston, because she actually, in her statement recusing herself yesterday, made the kind of remarks that, in fact, do appear to be reaching out for some way that there can be a dialogue uh, with these uh, people who have been protesting. She said, quote, I hope that this, my recusing from dealing with any uh, anything related specifically to the uh, officer-involved shooting, I hope this will instill with protesters on the ground that they will get a full, fair, impartial, and independent look, which I think is important for our community and for everyone That is Mourning Manuel, the the young man who was killed. There's an effort to say, I'm prosecuting the bad guys here, but I also extend an olive branch of sorts to those of you who are
0: protesting. And uh, Sherry Boston and Mike Thurman are both doing very good efforts trying to reach across the complicated political lines. The reality, though, in terms of de-escalation, is going to be very difficult when you have a small group of people, again, outside Georgia people, essentially, who are committed to violence. What feels new to me in my long political career is that there's a group of young people Totally estranged, so estranged from the any kind of uh, real political dialogue that they are totally in a mood to reject any form of community discussion. And both Kevin? Mike Thurman and Gary Boston are trying to work on that.
2: I think we're going to see more of that. I do um I mean this is the lines have been sort of drawn pretty harshly and clearly on this thing and we're I expect we will hear more statements like Sherry Boston's in part because um, politicians may be in a spot to, uh, you know, tone this down and, you know, they have to pay attention to voters. So um, I do Mm -hmm. think uh, that I'm not sure it will help. And I know the feelings are strong based on the emails and my Twitter feed and all that that uh, on either side. So I don't know that it will work. But I do think uh, Representative Oliver and Leo and and Amy all make the point, right? There needs to be a way for legitimate dialogue on important community issues that people are uh, free to engage in, welcome to engage in, and respectfully participating.
1: All right. Got to get to our final break of the show. Back with more in just a moment. Kevin Riley, there's an important environmental story that has been simmering in South Georgia for quite a while now and may be moving toward a boiling point in the days ahead. A company that wants to strip mine for titanium within a couple of miles of the Okefenokee Swamp has uh, been working to get permits to do it. The Environmental Protection Division in the state has now opened a 60-day period for comments on whether that uh, uh, should go forward, whether they should be allowed to mine there. There are environmental scientists who think this can do irrevocable damage to one of the most beautiful and important natural resources in the country. And now we have uh, Representative Darlene Taylor, a Republican, who's introduced a measure that won't stop this project from going forward but could, if it passes, stop any other projects from moving ahead. But in the meantime, Kevin, the question is whether the titanium mining company is going to get to start mining is so close to the swamp.
2: Yeah, and I do think people uh, in both in that region and around the state feel like the door has been kicked pretty wide open uh, despite this comment period. And it's an incredibly complicated process for anyone who's followed it, because at first, um, those who were opposing the operation thought the and hoped that the Army Corps of Engineers would ultimately be the body to make the decision when it became clear that it was going to be the state's environmental protection division i think most people perceive that as an unlikely uh an unlikely uh, agency to uh, push hard against the mining company and instead be more likely to accommodate the mining company
1: um mary margaret i moved to georgia way way back in 1983. i made my it was my first time in georgia I made a trip to the swamp within the first few months of being here. It was, to me, one of the greatest natural wonders I could ever imagine. And I go back every few years because it's such an extraordinary place. What are the chances that the legislature is going to take action that can prevent uh, further development of uh, mining around the swamp?
0: I'm a co-sponsor of House Bill 71 with with Chair Darlene Taylor. She's a very respected Republican leader. Uh, She's obviously a South Georgia person, although her district doesn't include the swamp. She's adjacent to it and has had a lifetime of experience in it. It's not only the beauty, the magical beauty of the swamp, its uh, its role in watershed protection. And mm-hmm. the reality is that we in Georgia have stopped mining in the Okefenokee in the past decades more than once. And so Twin mm-hmm. Pines as Alabama is just not going to give up. This legislation may have a chance because it doesn't stop this one permitting effort that's currently in place. It stops the expansion mm-hmm. of it. <laughs> I certainly see a very large number, I'm not sure the ultimate number of sponsors, 30 to 40 at least I think, that are obviously a bipartisan group of legislators. Uh, I think there's a chance, uh, there's certainly a chance that this bill could pass and could at least create some guardrails barriers for future development of mining in the swamp. Mining is a part of Georgia's history we just don't need to be renewing, renewing it and enlarging it in this watershed, magical place of Oke, Okefenokee Swamp. Uh,
1: I, I will say that the company says its environmental scientists claim that there will be no damage to the swamp uh, at, at all. And that's the debate that we'll watch unfold as this uh, period of comment continues. Um, Amy, I, I, I want to change the subject and give you the first crack at it. Uh, Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene are having a very public uh, love affair in the sense that we see photographs of them all the time, hugging and mugging together. Um, And McCarthy, because she supported him, she was one of the few on the far right that was willing to support him for speaker. All right. Now, very specifically, just the other day, McCarthy named her... To a subcommittee that is going to allegedly um, investigate the origins of COVID, the mistakes the government may have made in how it dealt with COVID. This is a woman who falsely used to tweet about the high amount of COVID vaccine deaths, who compared people being, she said, forced to wear masks to Nazi Germany, Um, she called for Anthony Fauci to be prosecuted and imprisoned. And this is the woman who will be a part of that subcommittee investigating COVID. So what do you think, Amy? Let me
4: interrupt long enough to say,
1: let me, let me interrupt long enough to say Mary Margaret's got to go. She doesn't want to get locked out of the morning preacher of the day. Thank you, Mary Margaret. And now go ahead, Amy.
4: Kevin McCarthy has a four-vote majority that he is trying desperately to hold on to, and it is, I don't think, at all a shock to say to anyone who is listening that Kevin McCarthy wanted to be Speaker more than anything he has ever wanted. He has tried numerous times, and he finally got it. One of the hallmarks of Kevin McCarthy, and he's fairly open about this, is that he doesn't really have strong policy positions he wants to keep the conference together and was going was willing to do what was necessary to do that uh marjorie taylor green was able to bring him the votes that he needed and in that meant then that he had to reward her the question is going to be whether or not Kevin McCarthy, since he is so willing to sort of cut these deals, but also doesn't really have an organizing principle to keep everyone together, is really going to be able to be in control? Or has he sort of set up a situation where he has given so much power to those who, to be blunt, do not actually represent the majority of the Republican caucus? in Congress. In fact, he there, there are already right quite a number, uh, the the other 150 who are kind of upset, honestly, about some of these decisions that are being made about what is now going to happen. And yes, part, partly what we now have is Marjorie Taylor Greene is, I guess, getting a, a platform to be able to discuss uh, her different things. I don't know if this also means she gets to discuss the Jewish space lasers and whether or not a plane flew into the Pentagon, um, but it's, definitely
1: concerning. Kevin, I got to say this really reminds me of Joseph Welsh, the attorney Joseph Welsh's famous quote in the Army McCarthy hearings in the 50s saying to McCarthy, have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you no sense of decency, Kevin? (laughs)
2: Well, um, if if there's anything to be argued for what McCarthy's doing, it is there may be some strategic wisdom in it, in that we know that that extreme right wing of the Republican House caucus undid John Boehner and undid Paul Ryan and uh, hold your friends close, hold your enemies closer. Maybe that's what he's doing.
1: Uh, you know, it's really Leo, but in the long run, it's the question is, is this really going to do the Republican Party any good in the 2024 election cycle?
3: Well, there's not much worse you can do for the Republican Party. I mean, we're pretty much at a pretty <laughs> bottom place. And it's only up from here. One of the things that concerns me about Marjorie Taylor Greene, and as you all have known, heard me on the show before, I tend to be you know the optimist and always try to. Point a path forward for Mrs. Green to sort of moderate and normalize. But the fact is, is that she is part of the normalcy now of the GOP base. And there have been state house leaders who have said that she is the new normal in some areas of our state. She has a big voice now. As Kevin was pointing out, when you take an isolated person and make them part of the team, they are almost forced to normalize a little bit. And that's where I have still a little hope, springing eternal.
1: Leo Smith, uh, thank you so much. We're out of time uh, for today's show. I, I really appreciate your being with us. <clears throat> Sorry again. Amy Steigerwald, thank you for uh, your participation in the panel today. And Kevin Riley, uh, always glad to uh, have a day to have you join us. We're out of time uh, for today's show. Tomorrow we're doing something a little different. Tomorrow we're going to take a look at the pernicious rise of anti-Semitism in the United States and right here in Georgia. But we're going to also do it through the lens of the history of the Jewish people in Georgia, which is fascinating and goes back to the very founding of Georgia as a colony and brings us all the way up to the present, but includes some really pernicious examples of anti-Semitic violence in the state. We'll do all of that tomorrow on Political Rewind. So I hope you'll join us. That's it for us for today. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, everybody. See you tomorrow.